All right, welcome to the Glow Weekly Podcast, also available on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, and other places. My name is Brian Pierre Grossi, author of The Big Glow and the Wild and Now, life coach, facilitator of retreats. I've really been enjoying this series, and this is an audio series today, and I'm with a really special guest, Nor himself. Hello. Good friend of mine, and we're in Asheville, North Carolina, and it's a... A uh, rainy, windy, cold April day <laughs> today. Lovely day today. A lovely, cold, windy, rainy day today. <laughs> and um, I think you're going to find Norm's life fascinating and the things that he's, he's, um, he's been through and experienced and where he has it, has it this time in his life. I know that I do. And so, hi, Norm. Hello. <laughs> Hello out there, all of you. Hello out there. Hello everywhere. Um, yeah, tell us about, you grew up in Alabama, right? Yeah, and I was just remembering uh, how they used to say on the radio, Hello, all you people out there in radio land. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so what was that like? What, what, what year were you born? I was born in 1934, okay. the belly of the Great Depression. Uh-huh. And uh, although my parents were the ones who really suffered it, I'm uh, sure I picked up a lot of the scars from it mm -hmm. because of their experiences, and mm -hmm. they were the main influences, of course, on my life. So mm -hmm. it's it was deep, but uh, uh, it was a good time looking back on it, uh, and. Uh, I grew up as a redneck sharecropper kid, mm -hmm. so I'm a vanished breed. I don't think there are any of us anymore, <laughs> especially not the way we did it. I remember walking behind mules, pulling plows and other tools, and uh, and I every now and then I get in a pensive mood and I have to pinch myself to realize that this is the same person, I'm the same person that went through all of that, and uh -huh. uh, it's just another world, another ethos. Yeah. Was there any um, TV at that time? Did you have TV oh, in your house? TV came after the war. Okay. And the war was a very big thing. Mm -hmm. The war, uh, World War II, was the most galvanic period, I believe, that this mm -hmm. country has ever known, mm -hmm. before or since. Mm -hmm. um, anyway... Um, the uh, technological innovations sort of got put on hold during that four or five years of the war. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first uh, TVs that came out were little uh, round uh, uh, cathode ray tubes. Looked a bit, a bit like what a washing machine does now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, gray and, and uh, splotchy with uh, all kinds of... Uh, uh, interferences and so on, so it was a primitive thing. Yeah. And then, so how old were you about when you had the TV? The TV came in. Well, we never had TV. Okay. Uh, we we never had a, a motorized vehicle except for a couple of years. My dad got a tractor, but that didn't last. Um, but uh, TVs came in, I would... I recall uh, very late 40s, uh -huh. and um, of course then uh, it grew by leaps and bounds, and uh, suddenly there was color TV. I remember the way it was talked about, uh, people would say, 
after the war we're going to have this, after the war we're going to have that. And, uh, and these country folks would say, after the war there's going to be radios where you can see the stations. <laughs> mm. It's not like that. Radios where you can see the stations. That's great. And then you, you so then, what was, uh, what was your kind of, what did you do for entertainment growing up? Well, um, my papa was a semi-literate person. He could read and write, but he was very bright. And uh, he was uh, disillusioned in a lot of ways. And his ambition was far greater than his uh, realization of whether he could ever make it or not. So he became somewhat bitter at home. He was a tyrant at home. Um, but he always insisted on having a radio. And radio was a very big thing in my life growing up. Um, it, and it provided most of the external entertainment. Of course, there were um, hoedowns and barn dances and so on, but we were never much for getting into those. But um, we would become a kind of a magnet for the community because we had a radio. On Saturday night, folks would come over to listen to the Grand Ole Opry. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I remember, uh, I remember that country music was really uh, big in my life until I graduated from high school, and then I tried to put it all away because that was like Hicks. Mm -hmm. And when I get out of here, ain't nobody going to know I'm a Hick, so mm -hmm. I'm going to quit, quit doing country music, and I'm going to talk like the big folks do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but entertainment was, um, was all the... Um, Radio dramas, you know, the detective stories and the uh, those um, uh, family stories and comic shows mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. Your family would come together like around the radio and listen. Well, yeah, but you know, in a living room, and it wouldn't be more than a dozen people or so. Mm -hmm. But um, you can you can hear the radio all over the all over the house, yeah. and uh, so. It, it wasn't like people just sat around and focused their attention on okay. that box, but that box was there providing the, yeah. the entertainment. And, yeah. but, uh, but for the dramas, that, that, that was not a draw. I mean, we, that was mostly just the family, immediate family, sit around and uh, imagine uh, what Nick and Nora North were doing. And... Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, and occasionally there would be Lum and Abner. They were... Ozark uh, hillbillies, uh -huh. and um, and I noticed that in those network shows, the syndicated shows, um, whenever Southerners were portrayed, they were portrayed as kind of bumpkins, mm -hmm. and I in in installed um, or took into myself the image that Southerners were discriminated against, um, and. And that Southern speech, for example, was uh, an earmark of that country bumpkin uh, kind of ignoramus mm -hmm. um, uh, way of being. So I put away all that. I had to speak two languages because if I came home putting all the nouns and verbs in the right places and all the right pronunciation and so on, I was being uppity. But if I went to school and I talked like a uh, country boy, then I was being ignorant. So I, I would trade languages 
for whatever context I was in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, um, yeah. And what, uh, what, what part of Alabama did you grow up in? It was the northwest corner, sort of uh, just over the line east of Mississippi and just south of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so uh, south of uh, Memphis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, you fin- mentioned Memphis brings up um, um, the uh, blue suede shoes. Um, yeah. Um, Lil- uh, Elvis. Elvis. Yeah. Elvis was just born over the over the line yeah. in, in Mississippi over there uh-huh. by Tupelo, <laughs> uh-huh. and and Memphis was just a little farther on over. Uh-huh. Elvis really changed things. It seems like he did. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, shaking his hips, and they 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 couldn't show the waist down because it was, I don't know what it would do, but it was apparently it was a scary thing. Having yeah. shaking his hips around. Yeah, gyrations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like the uh, uh, the joke went around. Why don't uh, why don't uh, uh, why don't Southern Baptists make love standing up? Uh-huh. Because it looks too much like dancing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there were a lot of provincial uh, attitudes and habits that were quite uh, constraining. Mm-hmm. And uh, religion uh, of the fundamentalist kind was very rampant in the country, mm-hmm. in the uh, uh, rural parts of Alabama. Um, and your parents or your family, were they fundamentalists? Christians? No, um, my mother was a nominal Methodist, um, but she didn't do much with church. My papa prided himself on being kind of the town infidel. Mm-hmm. He didn't have any professed religion or spirituality. But I came by um, a kind of inner um, spiritual vibration, I'll call it. Um, I, uh, my papa, though he didn't have anything to do with church and wasn't going to go, he didn't object to us going, and so the neighbors would come by and pick us up and take us to Sunday school, and uh, uh, we'd get little picture postcards, and it would say, have uh, biblical scenes on it, and it would say, Jesus loves you, and your heavenly Father loves you. And they acted like they did, the people who brought me there, so I believed them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't have a, you know, a big metaphysical vocabulary at that time to put all this into some kind of uh, theological perspective, but I had a, an inner heart feeling mm-hmm. of a connection. And I thought, well, my, uh, my sire, my carnal papa, mm-hmm. didn't have much evidence that he had it uh, too great a love for me. Mm-hmm. So if I've got a Heavenly Father that loves me, that's great. <laughs> and uh, so I came by uh, spiritual um, matters quite young. Mm-hmm. And um, I, uh, uh, I remember just having a lot of introspective um, uh, inner longings and reachings toward that spirit. Um, But I didn't have much um, manifest ways of expressing it besides church. Mm -hmm. And church came with a whole lot of 
of uh, social mores and moralistic uh, preachments that were well-intended, um, but left out more than they included, and some of the things they left out were the most important things. So, um, so my spiritual journey growing up was kind of a solo enterprise. And I came on, especially with the teachers in school, and uh, a few uh, outside the family adults who were like mentors, and uh, they were very encouraging. And I had a reputation, not a, I was not a goody-goody. I, uh, I, I, was, I was just, you know, everybody's buddy. Um, but, uh, but I remember in about uh, seventh grade, we, had, we used to have devotionals, a devotional period to start off the day. And it would be a Bible reading and a prayer and stuff like that. And this was in church, uh, in school. <clears throat> and I remember being the, the class chaplain and uh, getting a workout and going through the scriptures and uh, bringing things that I thought were going to be useful and that would help reinforce these um, good things that uh, church people and others were uh, putting out. So I was part and parcel of that uh, ethos. Um, there's a funny story about that, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> so you 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 kind of had this like sounds like like a some kind of sense of God inside yourself or yes. something that you were resonating with, and you were kind of looking for where you could yes uh, deepen that yes. And you found the church, and the church had certain elements that really resonated with what you found inside yourself, but then also some things that that were not there, that weren't present there. Yes, and I didn't even miss them because I didn't, I mean, I had these longings, mm -hmm. but I didn't say, well, they're not giving me, um, they're not giving me meditation disciplines and they're not giving mm -hmm. me uh, practices that I can do for myself mm -hmm. to deepen these. Things. So I, I didn't have a specific criticism. Mm -hmm. uh, I just uh, kept wondering, am I doing this right? And am mm -hmm. I good enough? And, mm -hmm. and um, a lot of the moralistic teachings were kind of uh, judgmental too and mm -hmm. so I always lived under that threat am I yeah am I crossing the line somewhere? yeah so you tried to follow those teachings and like yeah. live under that that thread of yeah try not to cross the line yeah and then um, at some point you become a you you go so deeper that you become a minister right yeah that was uh, somewhat significantly later uh, I remember I do remember this much is that in uh, in church, we'd have revival meetings. There would be a, a week during the year when we've laid the crops by and they, they're just uh, ripening out there in the field and mm -hmm. we got a little time on our hands. So we'd have church services every day of the week. And uh, uh, we'd go to the revival meetings and uh, uh, bring your heart to Jesus and all that good stuff. And I've been down to the mourner's bench to try to leave my sins there, <laughs> all of that. And I remember the elders would say, Norm, you ought to be a preacher. That's what they mean when they say, you know, that's how they talk about the yeah. ministry. You ought to be a preacher. And I used to get resentful about that. I was thinking, I would think, isn't this, isn't, isn't uh, faith and, and spirituality and religion, isn't this for everybody? And isn't everybody under the mandate? 
So why do you, if you think you see something in me, I mean, I never said this back to them, but mm -hmm. I felt it. Uh, why do you pick me out? Uh, and uh, why am I any different than you are? But I think I was seen as different. Um, and uh, so, as I mentioned earlier, um, as I graduated from high school and was wending my way toward college, which I finally got to by way of the Navy, I joined the Navy first and got a scholarship and uh, was uh, sent to college. And what to college did you go to? Vanderbilt. In Vanderbilt, okay. In yeah. Nashville, yeah. Tennessee. Yep. Uh, really a very fine school. And I was in tall cotton when I got there. It was really, I mean, uh, I was in there with people who uh, got Vanderbilt as a consolation prize because they didn't quite make it into Harvard or yeah. MIT. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I thought that to make it in the big time, in the real world, where people of, uh, of culture and of uh, sensibilities, uh, where they lived and worked and, and, and thought, that I had to put away all that uh, uh, redneck sharecropperism. So I quit listening to country music and started listening to classical music and I uh, let myself have the best I knew of the English language and speak well. Um, and uh, so I, um, and I, I participated in the campus ministry of the United Methodist Church and it was a very vital program of um, I mean, we had uh, little theater, uh, we, we, we produced plays, and we, um, we did a survey in Nashville, Tennessee. This was just on the lead edge when civil rights was just beginning to be a, a, a social issue, a social mm -hmm. concern. And we were addressing the issue of, um, of um, segregation, and of course, all the South was segregated then. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, well, what was this, that like? This is another thing. Uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you my come around on segregation in a minute. But um, but before I go there, I want to say that um, we were hearing all these arguments that separate but equal is uh, is a justifiable way to order the society. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were contesting that, um, black and white. Um, and we organized a team to go to all the major department stores and, uh, in Nashville and ask them to uh, uh, consider opening their stores on an equal basis. And they said, oh, well, we can't do that because the, the public won't, won't stand for it. And we'd be boycotted out of business if we started doing that. And we uh, raised the question then, well, if there were a pact among all the major department stores that on, on a given time we're going to open our uh, sales staff to black people and we're going to... Uh, wait on customers, uh, all just alike, and if that were agreed upon, that everybody was going to do it at once, would you join in on that? And some of them would say, well, mm, I, don't, I don't trust that. 
And some would say, well, yeah, I'll do that. Um, it, it never made any big headlines anywhere, but at least it was an education for those of us who were doing that social survey. Mm -hmm. um, but um, when I uh, graduated from college and went into the Navy, got my scholarship, I mean, got right from high school, got my, uh, uh, went into the Navy uh, so because I couldn't afford to go to college because Korea, Korean War was going on, and I thought, I'll build up some uh, GI Bill credit and go to college after the Navy. And then I discovered I didn't have to wait because I got the scholarship. Um, so I, uh, I went into the Navy and found a whole different ethos. Now, the Navy hadn't gone as far as it, obviously, as it has now, but at least there was no overt segregation in the Navy. And we were sleeping in bunks that were separated just by poles, of four-foot poles, and then there's a bunk on either side, uh, sleeping in very close quarters with each other and sharing meals together and all of that. And it, was, it, it, it came to be quite normal. And... Um, uh, when I was released early from my enlistment uh, to go to college, um, I left Bainbridge one day on my way home to Haytyville, Alabama, uh, to, um, to, to go to Vanderbilt. And on the way there, the train stopped in Birmingham. From, so we got on in Maryland and got off in Birmingham. I did, and started down the, uh, the ramp toward the waiting room, and up there over the uh, passageway was a sign with arrows. One said colored, the other said white, and I, I literally felt a kick in my gut, and I thought, what is this? I knew what it was, but yeah. what is this? You're like seeing it with fresh eyes. Yeah, really. Um, and, uh, my, my, um, association with integrated culture didn't happen while I was growing up because it was a small town, uh, small farms. There were hardly any black people in the county that I grew up in. Uh, they were odd to me when I would see them on the street, um, which was rare, um, but I didn't have that uh, experience of, the, uh, of, of a lot of black people who, if they happen to have the temerity to stop on the sidewalk to get a drink of water at a public fountain, they'd feel a whack on the butt because, you know, you, you don't drink from this, from, from this spigot. Um, I didn't have that growing up, but as I got out into the mainstream of society, it was so offensive to me. Um, and I know <clears throat> uh, where some of the turnaround points were. When I was coming up through grade school, the war was going on, and there were hardly any men teachers. Um, but by the time I got to junior high, some of the soldiers were coming back from the war, 
And uh, Mr. Creel taught uh, a subject called social studies or civics, it was called. And one day he posed this question. He said, uh, most of you know that Mr. Southern and I were in the army and we were in Europe and um, in some of the battles there were some colored people. That was the euphemism that polite people would use. Others would say other words, but uh, I noticed, he said, that if one of those colored soldiers got shot and would bleed his blood was red, just like mine. And you may know this, or you may not, but some of those German prisoners of war were brought to uh, Columbus, Georgia for uh, in incarceration in, in a prison there. And um, when the war was over, and before there was transportation enough for those soldiers, those German soldiers, to go home, they would be given liberty or leave to go out into town just like, uh, just like uh, American soldiers would be. And he said they would go out into the town and they could go into any restaurant and sit in any seat in the place. They could go into any of the stores. They could do anything that I could do. Now, he says, here are colored soldiers returning to their homes where they have invested their whole lives and they don't have those privileges. And here are our enemies become prisoners of ours who um, by force of, of circumstance are in a place where they get privileges just like I do. But, um, but these foreign soldiers who were our enemies don't have those privileges. What do you think about that? Is that right? And he was a southerner, just like I was. Grew up in all that segregation. But it really ground in. And I think that was the flashback I had when I got off the train in Birmingham, and I said, this is for color and this is for white. And, uh, and that stuck. And so I was in on the civil rights struggle before it actually became much of a public thing, and uh, all the way through it until the later years when I had gone through college and seminary and was doing campus ministry in the 60s, and all the civil rights marches, and all, all of the um, um, struggles, I was in all of that. Um, I remember we had one lad who came into our Wesley Foundation, which is what we call the campus ministry. Um, he had, his, his family heritage was South African and white. Um, Grandparents on both sides were officers in the Salvation Army, and he was a an avid Goldwater supporter, and I 
I guess it's long enough ago that maybe some of your listeners won't know who, who Goldwater was, but he was kind of the arch stereotype of the conservative who ran for the presidency. Um, and um, Andor, my friend, our student, was beating the precincts for him in his summer between high school and college. And he was a, he, he was, he had all the rhetoric. He was a, uh, a staunch Goldwater supporter. And uh, so we never segregated our campus ministry by political ideology. So anyway, there was a, a, a national conference coming up in Lincoln, Nebraska. We were in Long Beach at the time, California. And Martin Luther King was going to be the keynote speaker. And we were recruiting all of our students who, who would to go to this conference, and he went. And um, while we were there, on the night that Martin Luther King was giving the keynote speech, they locked all the doors to the um, auditorium and searched the place, and then they opened the doors at the time for the gathering, and one had to show a credential that they were registered at the conference in order to get in, and then they locked the doors. He gave the speech, and then they took him out a side door and with an armed guard back to the, back to the uh, airport. Well, anyway, all of that, all of that high-impact exposure and drama really got to this lad. And he came home, and he went on campus and searched out who was doing social justice kinds of issues, and he found Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Um, and um, it later on morphed into what became the Students for a Democratic Society. SDS became notorious as one of the activists, and they sort of slipped over the line of that nonviolence. Um, but, um, and after a while, he became the president of that, the SDS. Um, so it's, uh, it's an evidence for me of the transformative power of a, an opened heart. When the heart opens and sees a bigger picture, how transformative that can be mm -hmm. from the arch right to mm -hmm. the uh, way over the, the line on the left mm -hmm. um, because of a changed perspective. And did you find that your, your perspective, your consciousness expanded where you start, so you were, you were in the church, and you're in college, and then you went you the navy and the seminary, right? Yeah. Well, it it isn't that. I was even, even before, I decided for the ordained ministry. I was always at odds with the church when I when my mind began to be expanded. I was a philosophy major at, at Vanderbilt, and I was a um, 
a Wesley Foundation major mm -hmm. <laughs> in terms of social justice and those kinds of things. Uh, but when my myself, when I got in touch with myself, mm -hmm. and when I opened up, I became a critic of the church. Mm -hmm. And I remember that George Wallace was one of the notorious ones a little later in the movement uh, who was governor of Alabama. And um, he stood on the steps at the height of some of the activity of opening up the educational institutions. He stood on the steps of one of the university's buildings at Alabama and he said, there's never going to be any black people coming in here. Mm -hmm. And he was a member of the general conference of our denomination, that's the governing body, mm -hmm. the, the one who sets policy and all of that. And so I was, I was really angry with the church. And I was on a training cruise with the NROTC, mm -hmm. Navy uh, uh, ROTC, and we were on, I was on a ship, USS Des Moines, a cruiser. We were in the North Atlantic, and it was rough seas. But I had a watch in the middle of the night in the engine room, and my job was just to watch these, these um, valves, and when the needle got certain di direction, I'd open this valve and, and shut that valve. So mm -hmm. I was just there as kind of a monitor. And I began to, ah, I began to experience um, the um, the struggle, the the wrestling match that Jacob had with the angels, and they were saying, "Well, when are you going to declare for the ministry?" And I said, "How can I?" How can I go into a, an institution that is so self-contradictory mm -hmm. and so hypocritical? Mm -hmm. And the angel said, yes, that's true, it is. And who else is doing anything about social justice? Well, there are some out there who are. And who has the credentials for it? Who has... Uh, higher credentials for justice and, and, and peace and, and equality than Christian churches. So the question for you, Norm, is do you want to be a part of the problem or do you want to be a part of the solution? And if you want to be a part of the solution to bring the church back to a direction where it can serve the function to which it's called, how can you do that from the outside? And so that was when I got what we call in the, in the church a call to ministry. Mm -hmm. And um, that led me to seminary after I got out of the Navy the second time. And, uh, uh, and so it, it has always been... Um, it has always been the, um, the, uh, my purpose to be as nearly congruent as I can with the values that I see and then to um, offer these to other people and to hold accountability the 
people and institutions who say they support that. Mm -hmm. um, so I was really set up for the 60s mm -hmm. when all hell broke loose yeah. and all heaven opened up. Mm -hmm. The 60s were a time of, uh, of uh, uh, unimaginable breakthrough. Mm -hmm. And there are enough of us, um, well, let me say it the other way around. There are fewer and fewer of us who knew that ethos before the 60s. And um, I think people who, there are wonderful people who are, who are much younger and who grew up in, in a different time and, and place, but it's hard to imagine what the social structures were like if you didn't live in them. I mean, we hear about them and we villainize uh, a lot of people who otherwise were really good people. I mean, those people who said to me, God loves you, and they acted like they loved me, so I believed them. There was something precious in that. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, um, we'd see these war uh, movies, uh, and son is going off to war to do his uh, patriotic duty, and Papa and Mama take him down to the train station, and when <clears throat> he gets out of the car to get on the train to go to war, Papa and son shake hands. Mm -hmm. And it may seem like a small gesture, but if you had the experience that I did of seeing that men just don't hug each other, mm -hmm. then when uh, the first time, in somewhere in the early 60s, when one of my male students... Uh, a full-grown young man uh, came up to me in a moment of, of uh, joy and uh, put his arms around me and hugged me full on. And it was like a bolt of lightning went through me. I mean, it was wonderful. And at the same time, it was like, oh my God, do men do this? <laughs> so that was the first time you hugged a man who was in in the, in the 1960s? Yeah, well... So you were like in your 30s, 40s? Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it just it wasn't... It wasn't something that people did before that. It just wasn't that. done. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, it wasn't immoral. Yeah. It just wasn't part of the uh, vocabulary of, of uh, interaction. Yeah. And, and that's only symbolic. I mean, as a single gesture, it's not that big. But... It's symbolic of a kind of liberation that came through. Yeah. And it, it affected just about every aspect of human life. Including, including sexuality. Oh, yes. So what now, was there's that? There's a lot of devastation, too, alongside of those mm -hmm. breakthroughs. Um, and if we go towards sexuality, um, the, the sexual mores were just, I mean... Dorms, of course, were segregated. Mm -hmm. Every dorm, everywhere. This was not a um, racial thing. It was a gender thing. Mm -hmm. And um, and there were curfews. Mm -hmm. I mean, women had to be in by 9 o'clock. Mm -hmm. And men could not go on the floor where the women mm -hmm. lived. Um, so when you went from that in a few short months, even a year or two into uh, 
open dormitories, integrated men and women living in the same dormitories, and, and no curfews were to be seen or heard. Uh, these were liberating things. Mm. And along with that was, along with that permissiveness and the kind of busting out mm. of the mores, uh, there was a lot of overreaction. There was a lot of, um, um, there were a lot of, there was a lot of hurt mm -hmm. that people inflicted on themselves and on each other. And drugs came along to help it out. They'd been here all the time, but not as prominent. And I have, I have um, sat through the night holding in my arms a guy who's uh, trying to get back down off of a bad trip mm -hmm. from LSD. And I have driven a young woman across the border into Mexico to get an abortion. Mm -hmm. And and so there were these there were these devastating fallout uh, consequences as the as the uh, human psyche mm -hmm. and the collective consciousness somehow tries to adjust and come back to some normality. Tries to find the balance. Yeah. He's showing his hands back and forth, like finding a balance in a yeah. seesaw. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was a it was a liberating time, and a positively transformational time mm -hmm. in our society, and we're still working through. Yeah, trying to find a balance. So, what was your your personal journey like with your sexuality? Um, well, I I was schizophrenic, I guess you'd say. Um, because I heard this good news about uh, sex is for pleasure and it's a, a great um, uh, blessing and a joy and a liberation. That was in the 60s or that was bef before that? Well, who knows when it blended in there. Okay. But yeah, uh, it's post-World War. Uh -huh. um, and... Um, how are you going to keep them down on the farm once they've seen gay prairie? <laughs> uh, but trying to, the, the, the world was shifting rapidly and mightily. Um, and, and so we had all these movements. And there was a, 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 a sexual liberation and there was a, a gay liberation and women's liberation and anti-war and all of these things mm -hmm. and the civil rights struggle all going along simultaneously mm -hmm. and uh, so uh, how could you keep up with it all mm -hmm. well you just learn to navigate um, but I I was uh, I was uh, fairly uh, well conditioned to the mainstream mores um, just to use the kind of the um, initiatory uh, example of sexuality. Um, I uh, first time I masturbated was I was about twelve, I guess. And oh my God! The first thing that happened is the gates of heaven opened up, and oh wow, what is this? And um, then after a nanosecond or two of that <laughs> delight. My God, the gates of hell opened, and I thought, oh, what am I getting into? Uh, and so I prayed fervently to God, 
I won't ever do that again. I'm so remorseful. I'm sorry. And then, uh, if you'll forgive me, I won't do that again. And uh, this is how my 12-year-old mind was operating, mm -hmm. trying to be a good boy. And uh, then, of course, a few days later, came on again. And uh, so that seesaw kept going for a while. And then, being the assiduous Bible reader that I was, I, I saw this dialogue between um, two of the disciples. Mm -hmm. and, and they brought their discussion to Jesus. And they said, to, Master, um, it is said in the tradition that one forgives seven times. And Jesus said, no. Seventy times seven. By which, of course, he meant there is no end of forgiveness. That's always... It well. means you can masturbate a lot more times. <laughs> well, I... I <laughs> But I was I was literal because I was you know I was at that age yet I couldn't uh -huh. make nice distinctions so I was literal and I sat down and figured it out four hundred and ninety times <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, but um, but uh, I I I in some ways I was kicking and screaming and of course underneath that all too was. Um, was the um, psychological factors of and scars that you pick up of uh, you just don't do that. Mm -hmm. um, so my mind was opening up, and by the time I got um, uh, I, I, I got married on the night of my college graduation, but by the time I was ready to be married and did marry, I married a woman who had. Uh, come from the north, but she was uh, from southern parentage, and so she had some of the same hang-ups that I did. Uh -huh. So we never got the, we never quite got the language together, to uh, with our uh, with our bodies to put this all into a perspective. So we were um, we were quite liberal, quote unquote, in our public display and in our in our belief systems and in our work but in our private life uh, there was still a whole lot of um, self-constraint and uh, awkwardness and uh, too many other things to do to uh, take time out to pay attention to your own de personal development so I carried a kind of um, uh, immaturity and woundedness in my sexuality through the mm -hmm. early part of my life. And the big complicator that came in on the scene when I was in my early 30s um, is that I allowed myself to get very close to and ultimately to be sexual with one of my dearest friends. And that only happened for two nights, and then I shoved the genie back in the bottle and put the cork in tight for another 50, 20 years. <laughs> uh -huh. That was a woman or a man? A man. Okay. Uh, so to come to terms with the fact that there had always been an undertow that I never let in mm -hmm. to a full-blown consciousness of attraction to male-bodied people. 
and um, so um, and I went through my first marriage lasted for 28 years and I don't think my being uh, gay and that's a that would take another whole long long conversation which we won't have now but uh, to allow that I uh, I always had these um, homoerotic urgings and feelings um, but to let that be true for me uh, was a big, another big break open. And the way that happened was that somehow or other the word got around that I was um, empathic or sympathetic with uh, gay liberation movement and with gay men and with gaiety in general. And so these men would come and make an appointment and we'd talk. Sometimes they came to talk about their. This sexuality. is when you're a minister. Yeah. So they're coming to talk to you as a minister. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and in in my, um, well, by then I'm in my fifties, I guess. And where are you living at this time? San Diego. Okay. And um, and so these men would come and we talk about uh, issues of gay, and so finally, there must have been a half a dozen of them in fairly short time that came through, and they didn't particularly know each other. But I said, you know, I'm happy to share with you for as long as you want to. And we'll talk as long as it, as it takes. But I said, there must be scores of people in this campus who are doing the same work. And I wonder if it wouldn't be much more worthwhile to have a group of, of people who would all share of what they're going through and... Uh, what we're finding out. And so we got a little group going. We called it Gay Spirit. And we used a, a, a text by Mark Thompson called Gay Spirit. Uh, and it was a compilation of a couple dozen essays of elder men, gay men, who... This was um, in the 80s? No. Uh, no, it was in the 90s. Okay. And um, he... Um, and and these these twenty four essays had to do with what does it mean to be gay besides what you do with your genitals, mm -hmm. and there's a whole lot more to it. And um, um, so, but I was this straight minister uh, leading, facilitating a group of gay young strugglers, mm -hmm. and about a year and a half into that, <laughs> I finally decided. <laughs> Oh, that's more and more like me. I wonder what it would take for me to be who I am. <laughs> yeah, that's the real question. What it, so what did it take for you to be who you are? Uh, I think all these things are blending together and, and uh, finding a way to see that the world isn't chopped up into sexuality and politics and religion and this. It's all one thing. And, and when, you, when you put it all together all the pieces reinforce each other, mm -hmm. for better or for ill. Mm -hmm. um, so I think my, my coming to terms with my sexuality, though uh, in some ways that was the last one to show up, or the most recent one, um, I think that, um, that it was just a matter of, of allowing, of course a whole lot of other things were happening, I was getting into um, what was called in the uh, academic disciplines the uh, uh, 
the, that movement in psychology. Um, it's it's escaping me, but anyway, uh, a time in psychology where there was a lot of uh, interactive groups, you know, sensitivity mm. groups. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, anyway, I was going through a lot of that, and then I la uh, later in my development came across Eastern thought. Yeah. Funny, even though I majored in philosophy at Vanderbilt, we did mm -hmm. almost nothing with the East. Mm -hmm. And so I found Tantra. And uh, and so the, th the pieces, the threads, just began to weave together. Mm -hmm. Significantly, that's what Tantra is, is weaving. <laughs> yeah. Um, so allowing that, uh, allowing that wholeness to blend into the same... Um, vessel of one's life experience and uh, let go of judgmentalism and let go of preconceived ideas and open up to what's here and present and um, and and that that has stood me in very good stead and when did you when did you officially come out as gay what was that process like well um in that blurry time before I was quite out, and yet I was fully aware, at least in the underside of my mind, mm -hmm. I was fully aware that I am homoerotically charged. Yeah. Um, during that time, I met a man, and we just really hit it off. And we thought we had found our soulmates and we th were talking about what would it take to pull our lives together he from New York and me from California and so I'll shorten the story and say that he called me up he's a Pulitzer Prize winning composer and they had asked him to come to Finland and he said will you go with me to Finland and I said, well, I'd love to go to Finland. And, but before we do that, you, why don't you come to San Diego and go with me to the Gay and, Liber gay and Lesbian Liberation Ball? <laughs> mm -hmm. And he said, okay. And since he was coming to town, and since we were talking about making a, a partnership of it, uh, I decided if, if I'm going to uh, come out and be who I am and live with a man... I'm not going to hide it. Mm -hmm. And so I put out an invitation to my family and my uh, religious connections and to all my good friends to come to a reception. And, uh, and they did in large numbers. Uh, so that was my official coming out. But this was in, oh, I guess... Uh, early spring of the year I was retiring and uh, so it was no uh, of course there was a, a prohibition in my denomination that if you are gay you cannot be ordained or mm -hmm. if you are ordained and then you come out you have mm -hmm. to give up your now, where are you at with your with your marriage at this time are you oh that was long gone okay. I mean, I, so you I, did you tell her before that no in fact I invited her to my um, to my um, 
I gave myself a retirement party mm -hmm. earlier on than even what we we're talking about. And I called her up and I said, I just want to let you know that um, since you and I separated several years ago, um, I have allowed my homoerotic energy to, to flourish some. And she said, I knew that. <laughs> and I said, well, you never heard it from me before. She said, no, I didn't. But, but she came to the, to the party. Um, That's great. She came to the party. Yeah. We're great friends. I'm about to go off to see her now. That's right. Yeah, tomorrow. Um, but, um, um, so, so you came out and it sounds like you were supported by most of the people that you... Yeah, my being gay was never a uh, big issue. It mm -hmm. was anticlimactic in the mm -hmm. social scene. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, my ecclesia, my church boss, was at the at the uh, reception I gave for mm -hmm. my uh, lover and me, um, and uh, but and the, and the church law would have had me defrocked. Yeah. But it never, I never had any charges brought against me or anything. So, uh -huh. so I have not suffered in that way, the way a lot of my brothers and sisters uh -huh. have. And how old were you when you when you came out in that, with the ceremony? That was be that was ninety eight. So I would be sixty four. Sixty four when you came out is officially came out. Yeah, was gay. And then recently, you've come into some fame. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe as a eighty four year old porn star 84 year old gay porn star <laughs> so yeah so yeah tell us about that and what that's been like and the experience that's been like well my housemate has been doing some co collaboration with um, a man who's really trying to transform mm -hmm. uh, gay erotica mm -hmm. um, and so we we use the worn out language of porn and that that's a problem for me in some ways because I know I, I despise some of the um, exploitation and dehumanization that goes on in human trafficking and that, that sort of stuff. But porn has traditionally served just to give entertainment and titillation for people who um, uh, feel some lack in that department of how do you do it or or how can I at least see it if I can't do it or whatever. And, and that's, um, that's, um, um, that's changing, mm -hmm. at least in some circles. But anyway, my housemate was into this um, uh, video making of uh, changing what used to be called porn, and still is, uh, into... A, an eros uh, cultivating and enriching experience so you bring your heart and your soul and not just your genitals to your sex and sex is not just to get a gratification for a few minutes but it's to connect with the divine spirit that, that unites and binds all anyway he was in on this uh, project and they were about to do some videos and and they had one script for a an elder who is uh, blessing uh, some younger gay men, uh, 
And so he asked me to do the part, and there I was. And it it really got a lot of notice. Yeah. And um, so... And it's getting more notice right now. <laughs> <laughs> so that porn star well, is a kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it's 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 a part of the levity yeah. and the and the sweetness of um, going in a new direction, but um, yes, I've had not only the release of that video, which got quite a lot of notice, but um, a journalist from uh, London picked up on it and did an interview and published that in his medium. And uh, Huffington Post, uh, a journalist there, did an interview and, and put an article out. I had a, a phone call and later did a show, a talk show, on the radio in Tampa, Florida. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, then just a week or so ago, I had an interview with a journalist in, in Paris. Mm -hmm. so, and Jerry yeah. Springer invited you on. You, well, declined, yeah. you declined that one, but yeah. that was an invitation. <laughs> yeah. Well, he did, and I thought at first I was, you know, intrigued, and I thought, well, if what we're trying to do is to tell the world how wonderful sex is and how uh, beautiful you can make it be, um, then uh, he's got a, a big audience, so maybe that'll be a good thing to do. And then I talked it over with my housemate, and we, we decided, well, he's... He, uh, I didn't know. I, I'd heard of him, and I, I knew he was controversial, but um, um, I didn't know the details. So um, we looked at a few clips from his past shows, and I decided I don't want to talk into that. Yeah, it, it looked like old 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 style porn. Yeah. Worse. Yeah. Well, I think what people are finding really inspiring about you, the people that I talk to you that are friends with you and myself is just the journey that you've taken from where you started, you know, in Alabama and the, the sharecropper's life and um, to to this sense of just really living your truth, living what's authentic for you and living what's genuine for you and expressing that in the world um, and culminating in this, this, this film, this video now at 84 that's brought you some fame and some notoriety, and um, I think it's just inspiring whether whether someone is um, for someone listening that's not living their true sexual, who's not uh, expressing their sexual orientation in their life, or who's not living their life as an artist, or who's not living their life um, as a writer, whatever whatever it is that they feel is true inside them, they're not living it. Mm -hmm. That you're an inspiration, mm -hmm. the way that you've opened up to living what's true for you um, at this stage of your life. Well, so. I hope that's true. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and this is not self-effacement talking, it's my, it's my truth. I don't really feel such a star. Yeah. Because nothing changed for me. Yeah. <laughs> people, are people are discovering you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I think we'll, again, we'll do a next episode, we'll do a second episode at some point and talk more about Tantra and, and what that is for you and what that's meant for you. And maybe talk about Rudy. Maybe have Rudy on. I think that would be, that oh, would yeah. be great too. Oh, yeah. But this feels like a good place to pause uh -huh. right now. 
So thank you all for listening. Thank you all for being here. And um, live your authentic truth. Live your authentic truth. And um, we'll see you in the next now.